It was intended for the human to support the machine, the machine to support the human at work. And AI means something different to anybody you talk to, which is wild. This is AI or die. All right, episode six. I'm going to get the number right this time. Welcome back, everybody. It is June. Uh, 2023. We're in episode six of the AI or Die podcast. We have a very exciting episode today for everybody. Uh, we're going to have Michael Cavaretta from Ford join us later this afternoon. Uh, but for now, let's get into the news and the trends. But first, how are we doing today? Um, I'm excited. I'm going down to Cincinnati tomorrow, basically, to do a UX course for massive retail company, 100,000 employees. It's kind of interesting because they're thinking about how can we do UX design for our data analysts? How can we have consistent reports and dashboards in Asia and US and not get a sense of Nick built this one versus Reagan built that other one? So kind of a cool approach to literacy and just like another lens of like how these huge enterprises are approaching like global literacy from the UX design standpoint for this example. So looking forward to that and just getting prepped for that. And that's really top of mind for me. Um, what's going on in your guys' life? What are you guys working on? I have the heat on. <laughs> It's chilly. It's cold in Columbus, actually. Yeah. I literally have my foot heater on right now. Hopefully it's not too loud. Um, but lots of demos. I'm getting ready to leave for a little short vacay uh, right. next, actually tomorrow um, for about five days, six days. So a um, little, little short time off, which will be really nice. But yeah, we've been booking some demos left and right. So getting a lot of use out of the product, which is really fun. Um, and lots to wrap up before I head out tomorrow that day before you go on vacation is always the most act like meeting packed day front to back in terms of just following up on stuff so i feel for you let me know if there's anything man and the calendar when i get back to tuesday is just yeah, right back into it yeah. <laughs> it's pretty brutal that's how it is uh, where are you going by the way on vacation uh camping in tennessee so yeah. it's not too far away it'll yeah it'll be fun hopefully the weather's nice for you down there Brennan, how you doing, man? Good. We are having the coldest, rainiest summer, uh, beginning of a summer in Denver ever. Um, so it's been very interesting just to be like cold and worrying about the rain because you never have to like check the forecast. Usually in Colorado, it's like it's going to be hot. It's going to be dry. Um, but this year, for some reason, it's very wet, which is good because of forest fires and stuff. But true. been able to get up in the mountains and the mountains are still pretty snowy. So makes them a little bit more epic, which has been fun. So it's been a good time. Yeah, it's exciting. Anything coming up this weekend that you're looking forward to? I'm going actually going down to Taos, New Mexico, uh, where my oh, uncles cool. live. So we're going to go hang out down there. Uh, it's a really cool scene. Good food, good hiking. It's a really cool spot. So I'm excited for that. I'm happy that the smoke levels are better now, too. You're talking about forest fires. The big news this past week has been all about the Canada forest fires coming down into New York and Columbus, too. So there was a lot of concerns about air quality last weekend as well. But that seems to have passed, especially with this rain coming through. Yeah, I was struggling. Breathing-wise? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that and allergies, like pollen counts plus air quality. I was like, I am not leaving my house. <laughs> used to not exercise. Yeah. Um, yeah, in terms of coming up this weekend too. Oh, it's my birthday coming up next week. So if any oh. of our listeners are interested, we're going to go to the local water park here in Columbus and we're going to have a cabana set up. So if you want to come and have some dipping dots, <laughs> trying, <laughs> trying to do a rewind for my birthday this year and trying to go to the water park. That's hilarious. That's great. Yep. Um, in terms of other news, just related to today's topic, especially like machine learning, ML ops, it, I was doing some research just related to the ML ops market and it seems to really be popping off in 2023, especially in terms of investment into ML ops, especially with a lot of just machine learning teams really solidifying in their maturity at organizations. And then in large enterprises, thinking about that scalability aspect too. So I'm sure it's been cool for you guys. You guys have a much deeper experience in the machine learning and ML ops space. So just wondering if you can comment on just 2023, what you're seeing from an ML ops standpoint, that's most interesting. Yeah, we got our start with MLOps 2017, I think. So the last like seven years, six years. Yeah, let's do a rewind actually. Can you give listeners just an insight as to the whole start of your work around MLOps and what you were doing six, seven years ago and how it's turned into today? Yeah, be take it away. Yeah, definitely. So we started, actually my background came all the way from like the DevOps world. So DevOps like all the way back is development and operations and trying to like automate the handoffs that go from like a software team building something to like the team that's actually got to run that thing and make sure it keeps providing value for the business. 
And a lot of that turned into this, how do we release quickly? How do we update quickly? You know, how do we keep software relevant for the people that are using it? And how do we kind of use smaller batches, which goes all the way back to like lean manufacturing and agile is the other buzzword that was thrown in that mix too. So that was kind of my background. And especially with the introduction of like containerization, so Docker, Kubernetes, a lot of it was like packaging up software to make it smaller, more bite-sized, more flexible. And then that paradigm when machine learning came into the world was basically in order to get value from all this machine learning, all this data science work we're doing, we got to be able to package it up, manage it in production, make sure it's successful so that people can use it. It's relevant for them. So kind of a similar set of problems that software teams saw with, you know, traditional software is happening with machine learning, except there's just extra spicy problems <laughs> that make it a little bit harder. Um, and that's really where MLOps came up. It's just machine learning operations. So how do we operationalize, which is a big, too many syllable long word, but basically how do we get this thing in production, make sure we keep it in production, make sure it's, you know, accurate in production. And I think that's the real, you know, the shift or the kick, the extra spiciness that comes with MLOps is really machine learning learns over time, right? That's what it's built to do. These are very dynamic systems. They're very flexible systems. So we need to keep them accurate in production by monitoring them to make sure they're not drifting based on the data that's coming into them, the predictions that they're making. And that's the real challenge that a lot of MLOps teams face. So I'll just kick the uh, interesting buzzwords that's coming up now is LLM ops, which is terrible because that's also really hard to say, but basically how do we manage these big, large language machining, machine learning models in production? So that's kind of the hype cycle right now that hasn't hit the enterprise yet. I imagine that'll be coming soon is like, how do we fine tune these things? How do we keep them up to date on our stuff? So I think that's kind of like where the future is going from what we kind of initially have seen. Yeah. And just to break down some of the complexity. So um, if you've been doing any form of machine learning or predictive analytics in the enterprise for a long time, you're probably familiar with SAS, the statistical software tool, which I actually did learn in college, which is fun. Um, I have, I think I, like one of my stats classes used it. And at the time, um, you know, Python was becoming more and more popular as an open source option to build models because the open source community was able to develop these libraries and packages that um, were super useful for people who were building models. So instead of having to program the statistics yourself, you could leverage a classification technique um, and import that and, and use that and interface with it from a parameter perspective. So people started, you know, they really clung, they were really clinging on to R and Python. Mm -hmm. And so we saw all these models that may have been written in C, some models that were written in, you know, SAS and their language and their platform which a lot of enterprises were considered to be risky because they had all of this proprietary um, code basically stuck in this platform. It's the, the vendor lock-in risk or challenge. And so now they're trying to figure out how to support all of these languages in different, you know, in different um, production systems. So, okay, great, open source, but there's a security element to that. So there's vulnerabilities that exist. There's a layer of dependencies that have to um, be consistent between your development environment and your production environment. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the biggest challenges that they had was different versions of the programming language, different types of programming languages. Um, the cloud migration was happening at the same time. So you had people building models on their local machines. They were pulling data onto their local machine, building models using Jupyter Notebook and Python. And, you know, build, and, and then they would try to get these models off of their desktop and into production systems. And, you know, it, they tried to leverage a lot of the software stack and ecosystem, a lot of those concepts around DevOps that Brendan had mentioned but they failed them in a lot of ways. You could still use some of the core concepts like integration testing, unit testing, things like that. Um, but as Brendan mentioned, these are dynamic systems. So we have training data sets that will change over time as we retrain the model. Um, there's different parameters that the model will use, different versions of the model over time that might be more performant than other versions, different production systems or environments that it runs on. And so all of this variability caused a lot of 
struggle in the enterprise ecosystem because they like consistency and they like to have um, a singular mechanism to get things into production because it lowers risk. And we were working in high risk environments and ecosystems. So, you know, there was every single thing needed to be auditable, every single thing needed to be traceable. And so it wasn't just moving code to a different location. It was all of the tests, all of the metadata, and all of the lineage tracking that happened over time. Give me historical reference of how this model performed. Um, and it's not enough to just get it into production because now we have to monitor its performance as it's being used. So there's things like you know model drift. Um, so if the data changes that's being fed into the model, um, there's complexities about training the, the model. There, you know, some techniques and some use cases need a lot of compute, um, whereas others don't. Um, there's certain techniques that can run in parallel and certain techniques that can't. And so there's just every use case has this massive variability that's included and it's starting to get better. The, the platforms now are starting to get more robust. You've got end-to-end -end platforms that you can do development, testing, and deployment, and management. They do automatic lineage tracking and, and auditability. Now there's new platforms that, that can be layered on top for explainability, for example. So I just wanted to dive into that a little deeply because I think when we talk about MLOps and the nuance of maintaining these systems, you know, they're only getting more complex with these large language models. So um, you're, you're not dealing with these rather simplistic techniques now. You're dealing with something that's a lot more nuanced. It's a deep learning technique. You know, you're dealing with the transformer model. So yeah, which I think just had its sixth or seventh birthday also <laughs> when that research paper was uh, published. But anyway, I just wanted to deep dive into it because that's what we mean when we're talking about MLabs. And like I said, the technology has really boomed in the, in the last like couple of years. Now there's lots of platforms, acquisitions happening left and right. I think McKinsey did an acquisition of an MLabs platform not too long ago, so. Sounds like it used to be much more of a wild west, but to your point, a lot of use cases are getting more and more complex. So even though there have been consolidations and there is maybe more pointed practices to try and standardize, there's always new rounds of kind of use cases trying to address and then really figure out. It's not like it's going to stay consistent in terms of use case design or what we're trying to do with it. Yeah, I mean, it's so ridiculous, the level of nuance, like you could have a model and the two environments have two different versions of a package that it needs and it doesn't work. And like trying to troubleshoot that, like, is it the data? Is it the model? Is it the environment? Is it like troubleshooting, finding the error? I mean, that was like 90% of the challenge. You think about the one time through, but when it stops working, yeah. how do you find and fix the problem? Because it's highly complex. So yeah, uh, I'm Brendan. I've spent many a days <laughs> troubleshooting <laughs> really complicated enterprise environments. <laughs> I'd be curious what the actual life of a typical model once it is production is. Like, what's the longest living standing model that's out there in production? Like, Oh, it's long. Like, we worked with one company that had built a model in C that was running on a mainframe, and they didn't want to touch it. They were just continuing to just band-aid it, don't touch, don't break, like, let it yeah. be if it's working. Yeah. Yeah, I think ML has been around a lot longer than people think ML has been around. Um, Mark Andreessen from, he just released this really good paper and in there he cites like the first paper on neural nets. I I need to check myself here, but I think it's 1943 or something like that. And he's like, an entire generation has been born, gone through college, has focused on MLAI and is now out here building. Like now it's a bunch of engineers that are trying to fit this to business problems. And I think that's why we're seeing such a big wave is like, it has been around for so long to build up the scientific body of work behind it, where now it is, you know, more of an engineering level problem of this integration, hence MLOps, hence a lot of the product management problems people are seeing around ML as well. Yeah, that's why when people say, is it a fad? Is this like, it's not a fad. Like this thing has been around for a long time, but the problem has always been that we were always a hammer looking for an L. We were always begging people to find use cases and work with us to try to 
you know, generate a model. We're always trying to get budget. You're always trying to convince people of the benefit of it. And yeah, I mean, this is not a fad. It's the, the most fad thing right now is all of these tools getting, you know, built around generative AI, which I think that'll settle here soon. Yeah, before, it's especially before this episode, I was looking into just history of ML ops, and it seems like so many more universities now, especially, are having dedicated majors towards ML ops, which is another point around just really formalizing the role and the career path that people are taking to actually get into it and actually, you know, adopt it as their main job, as opposed to aspects of data science that they kind of fit into the ML ops role too. So it's exciting. It really is. So do you think now, as we look ahead, there's going to be inherently more consolidation, more acquisitions in this space, just because the amount of money that's being poured into it and the amount of just opportunity to grow for a lot of these startups, um, especially once they get acquired. Definitely. I think um, there's going to be a boom of people already. There is of people building features as yeah. products. And so, you know, there's going to be a consolidation effort there um, or people are going to compete and just build out features inside of their platform. Um, so it's still very much a platform play, my my opinion. Um, it, it it's too just it would be too just disjointed to like, yeah. you know, try to patch a ton of things together. Um, I think the cloud providers are very aware of that. They've spent a lot of time building out their development ecosystem, deployment ecosystem, trying to get even like the data connectivity to those environments yeah. done well. Um, and so, you know. And then the scalability aspect of it, I mean, they're cloud providers, so um, they can help with some of that and, and build that into to their platforms. Um, yeah, so I, I, don't, I always said, you know, some of these new complexities around the large language models, a lot of the platforms are just going to pivot to try to incorporate yep. um, that functionality into their platform as it is. Um, instead of having it a whole new platform just for large language models, uh, who knows? I know that like different databases for different uses is is appropriate. You've got relational databases, you've got things like Elasticsearch, uh, you've got graph databases, um, you've got databases like Mongo, and now people are like hyper focused on this vector database mm -hmm. ecosystem too. How do we store different types of data? What did those, you know, how do we index different types of data? Um, and who knows, maybe the modeling ecosystem will transform into that as well. Yeah, I think the, the big question to me is always like, how centralized will analytics and AI, especially from an architecture perspective? I think that's like the big question, especially for these MLOps teams is, will this be very decentralized where everybody kind of picks their own stack for their own problems? Or will team like will companies standardize up front? Because we have seen teams kind of go back and forth. I think given the risk inherent in MLOps, like or with machine learning in general, MLOps will design up front for governance. At least that's what we saw a lot of like controlling this stuff so it doesn't peripherate too hard. Um, as far as like having a bunch of different patterns of how to accomplish this, because that just makes it harder to kind of govern. But I'm curious to see just how centralized this is, because the more centralized you have it, it kind of slows it down in a way. So I'm curious if some organizations will just go decentralized, do ML how you want to do ML. Other organizations will probably be more locked down and more rigorous. We've already kind of seen some of those patterns, but I think that will influence a lot of these platform plays because if you have a centralized architecture and a cloud provider like AWS, Google Cloud, Azure, you might not need a lot of these other platforms on top, right? <laughs> they might solve really a lot of these problems inside of there because they already control the compute layer. So. I think that'd be really interesting to see how that plays out as these organizations scale ML. It also seems like the centralization would help with just long tail solution adoption in terms of thinking about the models that you're deploying as solutions, as essentially use cases for the business. So I would think that if there's standard processes around how they're deployed, that would help point the end users to how to actually use it and articulate it for the business too, ultimately helping with usage of it, right? The end goal of it. Um, there's always been a compute challenge and an efficiency challenge. So if you build a model using Python, um, you've got this, you know, design choice as a developer of that model on how you build it to make it super efficient. So there's the age old joke that data scientists are not good programmers, right? 
So they'll build a model in an, in, uh, an experimentation environment, and then they'll throw it over the wall, doing quotes for people who are just listening. Um, and then a software developer will rebuild it and recode it. And they used to recode it in a different language that was maybe more performant than Python, because Python gets a dig a lot because it's not super performant. Um, and so what LLMs have done is it has pushed that limit. If they're very expensive to run, right? And it's pushed the limit of where we've been from a performance need perspective. So this is why everybody's talking about GPUs. Everybody's talking about NVIDIA. Everybody is um, talking about this compute problem, which is important to talk about. Um, can we make this cheaper? How can we make these run faster? There's kind of an efficiency element to this on the infrastructure side, but there's also an efficiency element to this on the software side. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, there's certain design choices you can make in when you're programming something to make it more efficient. Um, and then there's certain elements in the programming language itself that can be adjusted and changed to make it more efficient on how it communicates or how it's compiled or interpreted, for example. Um, so I was just listening to a podcast. They mentioned Mojo as a new programming language that's specific for AI developers because they are um, reconstructing the way that it's compiled or interpreted. Um, and so it, I just found it to be really fascinating um, because they were kind of walking through the nuances of why Python is not performance and things that you can do with this new programming language that you can't do with Python as is. Um, and some of the software efficiencies might also help with the compute challenge that we're running up against as well. So, cause I remember when we were monitoring models, it wasn't just model performance from like, is this thing giving me the right answer? But it was like CPU and memory utilization and all of that, all of those metrics on the infrastructure side that we were monitoring as well. It's really fascinating, especially as these capabilities kind of mature. I think it'll evolve into less and less about being just growth and innovation in the space, but starting to treat it like another shared service and organization around how do you justify the investment? How do you show value for a lot of the effort and a lot of the team that we're building out too? So that's really fascinating to hear that there's a new programming language. Did you get a sense of if the learning curve is that crazy different from Python? Like, do the efficiency... Um to justify the amount of time it would take to pick up maybe a new programming language like that. Yeah, I think there's a couple of um, additional elements that you would need to learn. I started poking around in it. You can actually go and like request access. Uh, I think it's early access. They're just now getting it released so they can build against real use cases instead of in a vacuum. But uh, nice. yeah, you can request access. I was fiddling around with it a little bit. Very cool. It looks like our guest for today's podcast has joined. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Good afternoon. Thanks for hopping on. Hey, how you doing? Can you hear me okay? Yes, yes. Can hear you loud and clear. How are you? Where are you calling in from? I am calling in from sunny, actually more like rainy, Detroit, Michigan. We have very similar weather here in Columbus. It's very rainy. It feels like fall, basically, today in Columbus. It's chilly. It really And so much for joining today. Really, for our guests at home, would you mind giving us a sense of your role at Ford and what you've been building lately related to ML? Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, I am a long-term employee of Ford Motor Company. I've had a lot of roles over here at Ford, always in analytics. I am currently the leader of Ford's quality analytics team and uh, coming from former roles in manufacturing as well as building out our analytics infrastructure. So the things that we're currently working on right now have to do with measuring, monitoring and improving Ford's quality across all of our different quality processes, whether that be our pre-production work where we work on designs, our production work where we actually build the vehicles and then post-production where we get feedback from our customers. So all of that is within our current purview and where we bring these AI and ML techniques to bear. 
It's very exciting. And just in working with you at Ford, it seems like Ford is just much more advanced in ML ops compared to most other organizations that we talk to as well. Just reflecting on some of the success you've seen at Ford, what are advice you'd give for other organizations who are really earlier in their ML ops efforts? Sure, that's a great question. And I want to think back to the lessons that we've learned. I think the biggest thing that I can advise organizations looking to get into ML ops is make sure that you're leveraging the, the, the basic idea around your capabilities as an organization. So don't try and build out an infrastructure on a custom basis. Try and buy as much as you can and instead focus on the high leverage points where you have areas of expertise. So take the different business processes that you have that are really providing the biggest bang for the buck and make sure that you're able to bring your ML and AI ops to bear in those circumstances. So look for the quick wins. You're not gonna do that by trying to build your own proprietary infrastructure. Make sure that you've got ways to be able to show value quickly. That involve especially thinking about where to drive the most value. Did that involve a lot of work up front building inroads with certain business functions? Like were there particular business functions that you guys partnered with early on as you were expanding this capability? Now it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, one of the one of the first ones that they worked with was actually our quality organization. And you know, when you have an organization that has a lot of statisticians in it, people who respect data people who have a Six Sigma background, they really understand data and being able to come to them with new techniques. They really can kind of see the value of this, especially at scale. And that makes it a, a lot easier to, to show value as opposed to having to explain people, hey, you know, this is what AI is, here's where it works, here's where it has challenges. I mean, they get data. So that was one of the first areas that we were able to provide value on. Yeah, inherently the learning curve is lower, so you don't have to really do the upfront education. You can get right down into the use case design and, and really thinking through how is this going to integrate into your day-to-day -day work, which is exciting. Nice. It's really good to know. And what were some, yeah, that was sound, that sounds like a, a big win early on is partnering with that quality team. Were there significant challenges on the other side of things that your team faced as you were maturing? So I think generically speaking, when I think about the entire larger organization of uh, global data insight and analytics at Ford, the, one of the biggest challenges that we have is just dealing with Ford as an entity, as an enterprise. You've got a, a large legacy company. It's been around for 120 years. It has a lot of business processes, and there's a, a lot of customers, a lot of vehicles sending data, a lot of interactions with those vehicles. There's just a lot of stuff going on. And being able to scale your ML ops to address some of the important business problems, it, it can be very challenging. You know, just the processing of connected vehicle data is non-trivial at Ford. It is, it is something that's tough. And being able to put ML ops on top of that, where you've got a lot of data that just needs to be processed to be able to get the features that you need for your models, like making sure that works day in and day out on a consistent basis that it delivers the capabilities and SLAs that the customer demands. I mean, that, that's hard work. You then layer on top of it, being able to deliver AI and ML models that provide that additional layer of value, right? We've now got an end-to-end -end process that needs to work pretty seamlessly to be able to deliver that value. And, and I can actually tell you, when you have delivered for, let's say, three months, and you present it to executives and they are expecting that, boy, man, that call that comes in at, you know, seven in the morning when somebody at a plant is calling you and saying, hey, this thing isn't working and you're, uh, and then, you know, fill in a bunch of words, then you know they're using it, but you also know you got to deliver. Which is exciting. And it's a long tail of adoption in that way too, but it's like kind of a good problem to have where, hey, they're actually trying to go and use this. I want to make sure I can support them now that it's out there in operations too. Bingo. Mm -hmm. I love what I love about how you talk about MLOps is you've talked, you've mentioned the business in every sentence. <laughs> when oftentimes when we hear people discuss MLOps, they're talking about the technical nuance, some of the different techniques that they're leveraging, different tools they're leveraging, which I think are all important. But I do love that you keep bringing it back to the business. 
I one of the biggest things, and you also mentioned um, incorporating these models into a critical operation, which is how we always saw MLOps as well, which was getting outputs from models into systems or in front of people to make decisions and do something with. Um, how did you, when did you know that like there were significant needs around the technical ecosystem and how did you tie it to business value? Like what does that communication process look like inside of Ford? Uh, wow, that is a that is a brilliant question. Not a not a great question, but a brilliant question. One of the challenges that I think many organizations have, and and we've had in the past, has been trying to tie the value creation of analytics and and machine learning to business outcomes. And we've gone about it from a couple of different ways. So one of which is really explicit connections between this model is used to optimize this KPI. And so we have a, a large amount of respect for running the business on a KPI basis. You know, we're gonna, we understand that manufacturing has these critical six KPIs. And if you can draw a line between one of them and what you're doing, you're pretty much good to go. So, so that's one. Uh, the other one though, is one that's, that's a little bit kind of sneakier. And what we've done is we built what's called a command center. And this command center is a, a real-time representation or close to real-time representation of how our, our entire end-to-end -end process is working, everywhere from data ingestion to how ML ops are, are actually being applied and the machine learning models are, are doing actual inference. And what this does is it allows you to be able to kind of look at this entire process and see the health of it. And one of the nice aspects of it is we, we can see how many people are using our products. And so, you know, when you have somebody who comes in and, you know, if somebody's looking at, at trying to, to poke on you and say, hey, how are you delivering value? It's easy to be able to point at the screen and be able to tell them, well, you know, you should ask, ask the thousand people that have used our tools in your organization because here are the numbers. Like we can give you their, we can give you their email addresses, right? They have to log in. We, we know who they are. And so it really allows you to be very quickly move the top of the conversation to, okay, obviously these people are using it, they're deriving some value from it, and we've maintained that over time. There's, we gotta be doing something right over there. So it's kind of this combination of connecting things to the KPIs, as well as being very rigorous with regard to measuring the usage of our products. Mike, the thought of that command center is fascinating and because especially for our listeners, we try and give as much pragmatic, like here's what other companies are doing as close as possible. And was that command center, just for folks out there, something you guys built manually, kind of grassroots? Was it something that you shopped around for a while to get? Because I think it's a, a brilliant idea, but I think a lot of teams think that's inherently a pipe dream. So how'd you guys actually get there? Because that's so cool. So uh, I, I will give... Full credit for this idea to our CDAO, uh, Gil Girari, who had, a, in one of his former roles, uh, had a command center. And the nice thing about it was when he came in, he was able to explain it in a way that allowed the organization to relate it to the way command centers are done, like in manufacturing plants. And so when he said command center, they were like, you mean control center? And he said, no, but it's like 90% the same thing. So it was very easy to explain in a way that the organization could understand. And we can point at things and say, hey, hey, this works. Now, the way we built it, infrastructure-wise, we went as light as possible, but we were not able to find kind of off-the-shelf that gave us all of the capabilities that we needed. So we were able to do best of breed. We kind of pulled from different areas. Uh, there's a lot of tools, you know, tools like Splunk and some of the similar ones that can pull some of that, some of that data. But much of what we wanted to do was have different levels of information. So there, at the highest level was very much summarized and kind of should come some customized dashboarding type things for showing to executives, hey, here are all of the different products that we have. Here's how your organization is using them. And then a the couple levels down, there's information for people who are actually on the teams to look at very specifically, hey, here are the places here are the different pages that different customers are going to. Here's how they're using it. Here's how it's changed. You know, here's our operational constraints. So being able to have those two pieces is definitely been a journey. 
And I can't imagine just the amount of strategy work you guys had to do around the data collection process for putting together kind of this best of breed too. So that's fascinating. And then is your team primarily the users of this command center? Does the business go and reference it as well? Who are the primary folks referencing this command center? So we, we definitely put it together with an idea that there were going to be those two constituencies based on kind of the level. So uh, people on the product team themselves being able to look at this for understanding more fine grained statistics on how users are using the products and then kind of this executive level. And that's that was definitely where we went to. But, you know, you give people uh, the ability to be creative and wouldn't you know, they get creative. So we have had a couple of circumstances where uh, people have had very specific, you know, accuracy measures that they want to put on uh, the command center. And then we actually show them to the business and we'll say, hey, we've been training this with your assistance. Go to this page, take a look at how it's been improving over time. Here's our goal. You know, we need to hit, let's say, 75% accuracy. We're currently at 65. Look at how we've been moving the last few weeks. And it's been a way to kind of communicate back to our business customers in collaboration with them as they provide more feedback on our ML models. And that leads me to my next question related to how your team engages with the business. Because you, know, you talking about the business in, in, in each aspect of the questions we ask, I think is primarily telling, but also very curious how you've structured your team of engineers and scientists in terms of their engagement with the business. Do you inherently protect them? Do you encourage them to have their own liaison to the business? How do you guys engage and make sure that whatever you're building is aligned to the business needs throughout the life cycle and then ultimately integrated effectively at the end? So we have a we have a structure where we've got a, a primary product owner and a product manager mm. assigned to every one of the products in our portfolio. And the product owner is really responsible for this idea of what are we doing? So representing the business and everything that we do. And they need to have a good understanding about what the business is trying to do, how they're doing it, how does our process, how do our products fit into that particular process? And then like the, the product manager is more the, well, how do we go about doing that? You know, what's the technology? Are we actually getting things done? Are we doing the right things at the right time? And so these two kind of collaborate in there. I will say that at the very beginning of hiring some of our POs, yeah. much of their ideas were, well, I want to shield uh, the data scientists and the technical people from kind of the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. And what we had wasn't like a full-scale riot. It was like a minor riot of, of them saying, you know, you can't do this because we need to understand the business better. And so now we've kind of flipped them some things around where we've got POs who will have they come in and they'll be like, every week, we're going to have a two-hour meeting where I'm going to walk through how the business is using our tool over, mm. you know, whatever the last week is. Here, here's, here's how they actually implemented things. Here are the benefits. Here are the detriments. And really representing the business in that. And so we've kind of, we've done a, a pretty much a 180 from where we thought we were going to be. And I think it's been very successful. Quick question on like variability of use cases. We run into this a lot. Typically, like different business needs require different types of modeling techniques, different requirements around explainability and different data sets, um, different requirements around availability of the solution. How do you create consistency on your team trying to address some of the variability that you get, you might get from the business depending on the use case? So in those circumstances, I come back to always the two strategic keys that, that I like to emphasize. So first of all, it's delivery of business value and making sure that you've got that front and center. You're always making sure that whatever you're producing has a value to the business that is beyond the cost that you're putting in. That's number one. And we talked a little bit about that with relevancy and matching KPIs. Uh, the second piece is this idea of credibility. And it's making sure that we're consistently delivering what we say we're going to deliver, but also that we're getting to know the business and that we're applying appropriate techniques to the business problem. So, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to have a full-blown optimization that we're going to spend six months putting together when we've got, you know, 25 different choices in this thing. There's just not enough there even though that's maybe the more technically interesting one. And so this variability that you talk about really to me boils down to making sure that 
as long as we're delivering the business value and we've got good credibility with the business, I let the product owners handle whatever variability that they have. And they've got kind of carte blanche to go out and make sure that as long as they've got good credibility with the business and they're delivering business value, have at it. What about the stat that I think there was like the famous stat from Gartner? Um, this might have been a couple of years ago that like 90% of models don't make it to production and there's all of these challenges and nuances to that. Is that something that you experience like not every use case is feasible to build something around or you know, not everything makes it out of experimentation mode? How do you how do you see that? And does MLOps address some of that? So I'd say MLOps doesn't address it specifically. Much of what I've seen, at least out in the literature, has to do with I've got a solid use case and I know that a machine learning model is going to deliver the, the business value that's required. What you're actually talking about is something that I really would wish we would we would have more conversations about, which is the, the perspective of the user versus the perspective of the technology. And the gap that we have between where a lot of times the business customer is like, forgive me, I'm going to use a Ford analogy. Like, I want a better horse, right? They don't think about actually a car. And so that's why that credibility piece is like so important to me. It's at, at a certain point, you can sit down with the business owner and you can say, hey, look, we understand your business pretty well. We're never going to know it as well as you do, but we understand it pretty well. We've got a history of delivering. Let me talk to you about three things. How do you do automated predicting? How do you do it in a way that scales? And then what are the other opportunities that we have to bring advanced analytics for automation? And if you've delivered business value and you've got good credibility, you can, you can get them to a place where they want to use those more advanced techniques. And that leads me to kind of like two really separated questions, but in a way like very related in terms of what scares you and what excites you about the future of AI and ML ops in large enterprises, especially starting with like what scares you inherently operationally, what keeps you or your team up at night around scaling ML ops, advancing the capability inside of Ford and things that other large enterprises should really think about and prepare for. Yeah. Um, boy, that's a really interesting question. The, I think the scaling part is, is really key. And what concerns me about this space is the gap between what some executives have heard out in kind of the public press, uh, particularly around AI. So chat GPT, ask it a question. It's the genius that'll come back and answer anything. Well, let's just use that. And, and if I, if I could slam my forehead against the table when how many people from other companies have, uh, you know, their analytic groups have talked to me about how are you actually doing something with ChatGPT? Well, you know, there's a lot of problems with that. There's 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 challenges in that. Even though there's a lot there's a lot of promise. So I think the popular press is really generating a lot of enthusiasm that is outstripping our ability to be able to deliver, and particularly in legacy enterprises where we've got a lot of data that's maybe of dubious quality and we need to work on that to get that together. So that's the concern. I think the part that I think has a lot of promise and the piece that I'm really looking forward to has been, you know, we've moved out of the prove it era of AI and ML where it's not to the case where people are like, I haven't heard of this. You're going to have to show me that it works. You're going to have to do like a prototype and, and oh, and then, and then another POC, and maybe it's going to work over here. And, you know, it didn't work over there, so now I'm really unsure. We've, we've established enough in the domain that I think most companies feel like, yeah, this is something that's, that's there, that works on a consistent basis. It's not always easy, but we know that there's a path to be able to deliver value. And so I think now it's that ability to be able to scale to the next level of problems. So we've already hit the ones that are maybe the low hanging fruit and the like the really high, high value ones that are going to be the high hertz. It's that middle layer now that we have to go after where it's not something that's super necessarily crucial to the business, but it's also kind of challenging. And that area is a tough area to be in, but it's also 
where we need to play. Do you take inspiration from any other companies who may be at that next level working on that middle ground of use cases? Any just particular ones that you follow closely that are doing interesting stuff? Um, yeah, I think uh, I've had, I'm not going to mention the name of the, the specific company, but it's one of the airlines that I've had some really interesting conversations with and a lot of the work that they've done on predictive maintenance, which mm -hmm. has been absolutely fantastic. You know, we've got some stuff with predictive maintenance, but it's a whole level different when you have to do it on an airplane where, you know, something goes wrong, the circumstances are a little bit more dire than just being left at the side of the road. So um, a, a lot of the work that they've done to be able to really bring that to the next level, to make it robust, to make it scalable, and to really make sure that it works end to end, and that's been a high watermark for me. That's exciting. What I love about everything we've talked about too, um, so far, I've been a huge evangelist for product owners or product managers in this space. So I'm just very glad that you mentioned that structure and like how critical that is to even something like MLOps and how that kind of trickles down because they have ownership around business process and making sure what's getting built is real and, and will be used. And there's continuous involvement and collaboration and they're, they're kind of at the crux of that. So I appreciate you <laughs> doubling down on that topic because it's something that I feel like people don't take as seriously or they haven't to date. Yeah, I think it's worked out really well for us. And much of that is around the, the person that you bring in to be that product owner. If you bring something, somebody in from the business who has enough understanding of computer science, engineering, that they can kind of talk on the more techie side, but really represent the business, man, those people have, have really have an outsized tendency to be able to deliver outsized value. That's been our experience. Yep. There's the age old question of teach somebody from the business a little bit of tech or teach technical people a little bit about the business. I think the answer is both. <laughs> um, but to your point, somebody really understands it and can speak the language. They're, they're dangerous in a good way in this space. Oh, definitively agree with that statement. <laughs> awesome. Well, Mike, this has been just such a fantastic 30 minutes that have flown by so quickly. I feel inherently smarter just from sitting here talking to you. So thank you very, very much for your time today, Mike, like for hopping on, talking in depth about some of the things that you guys are doing in Ford and just what you're seeing and what's exciting you about the industry too. So this was fascinating. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity and, and thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much, Mike. Cheers. I apologize. I feel like I hogged the conversation just in terms of the questions I was hitting him with. Um, there's so many more questions I have for Mike. Would love to have him back at some point on the podcast too, but I just feel like the way he was able to get down, especially into that command center level, talking through their approach and just how they can monitor the influence and constantly thinking about the business and the work too, just speaks volumes to why they are so successful at Ford and why they are such an advanced team capability. Call it what you want there too. That was the main thing I took away. Anything that you guys found particularly interesting? Yeah, and I talk to Mike all the time. <laughs> He's a great guy and a great resource to really pull on because in MLOps in particular, like a lot of people are thinking about it from a technical lens, but Mike's, you know, he's the guy in the arena. He's actually doing it and he's really doing it the right way, I think, to be truly transformative by partnering with the business. Uh, there's a lot of hype cycle around MLOps from folks that know ML engineering that have gone through some Coursera stuff or gone through some generic stuff, which love, you know, learning from them too, especially on solving technical problems. But when we look at what the real outcome of this technology is, is, is to be transformative. And that's what Mike is helping realize at Ford. And you can tell like the progress that they've made, the way they've done it. That's like the real patterns, especially in the enterprise. So it's always just so valuable to sit down and talk to him and hear kind of like, how they've approached it and how successful they've been. Yeah, same here. I have known Mike for a number of years now. <laughs> um, and he's always been a useful resource and agree. Couldn't echo more. I think I, back six years ago when we were working on that MLOps platform that I was talking about in the beginning, we had this dream of a model operation center, simple, similar to like a NOC, like a network operation center, you know, same kind of concept. I think we were picturing it back in the day as more of a model performance 
tuning place for the technical teams, which can still exist and is still valuable. But I think from his perspective, um, what they've built is so centered around the business and contextualized. And it sounds like they took both personas into consideration, which I think is so important. So yeah, I really love to hear that. That was really interesting. I've actually never talked to him about that, you know, operation center he put together. So yeah, it's cool. And it sounds like such a huge building block and they're continuing to expand and add metrics, starting light from a product management standpoint, but then continuing to add and build it into what they need to like kind of a best of breed as you refer to it as. So that was really Yeah. Cool. And it's interesting because like I'm hearing about solution adoption challenges all the time. And I think the easiest answer is it's just a technically hard problem. Mm -hmm. How do we get this model into a production system? How do we go through all the right things? And really it's probably more of a problem on not working with the business very closely and doing that from the beginning um, because those technical challenges get really hard to navigate when they're not clearly defined from a set of requirements of what's going to be useful for the end user <laughs> so it's kind of hard to go at it from a bottoms-up approach um, but yeah there's still i mean very much so Lots of conversations I'm having, people are still struggling with solution adoption. Um, obviously, there's a lot of complexity to that, including things like change management. But yeah, I'm just glad he brought that up. Yeah, solution adoption leads to value for the business, which all inherently helps justify all the investments that you're making from a technical and a team standpoint, too. So it all connects. Also, he's like one of many, many leaders in this space who are navigating the waters of chat GPT questions. <laughs> questions everyone. From leadership. <laughs> it's not a fix all. I just, if you're listening and you're excited, you should be excited. It's interesting, tons of promise, you know, but it is not a one size fits all for everything. There are certain use cases where it's helpful. And I think it's pushing conversation and pushing attention towards AI in general, which is really good, but it is not a like silver bullet. Well, when I just wanted to do a quick shameless plug, we did write a blog together, myself and Mike. Uh, it's available through Katie Nuggets, so we can post up that link. But if your team is looking at how do we scale MLOps, because a lot of teams are kind of getting over that initial hurdle of the first couple, and then now they're looking at how do we really make this like massively scalable. So talk about the monitoring, the governance, the people side. So uh, check that out. Yes, I was just going to say, check out the blog we've posted with Mike and our resources page at getalinei.com. Of course, you can listen or die by going to our resources page as well at getalinei.com. Subscribe or die wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'll see you on the next one, guys. This was episode six. Episode seven is coming up next. We're really excited about some of the guests we have coming up. And then also reach out to us if you have any thoughts around joining our podcast or you have somebody that you'd like to recommend joining us too. We're having a lot of fun with these, so there will be more to come. With that, thank you, Brendan and Reagan. Uh, we'll talk to you guys later. Yep. Have a good one, y'all. Hey, guys. All right. Well done. Thanks. I uh, do think I actually...